0: invite you to take your Bibles there and open them to Psalm 105. Edward just finished reading through the psalm, and I thought it would be helpful to have him do that because it's a longer psalm, and I wanted to read it um, in its entirety, as I think it's helpful for us to have that, um, the context of it here as we consider it today. Uh, A psalm of 45 verses, it's unlikely that I can comment on every single one and every single thing that I would like to say uh, in a message uh, here today. But um, I hope to be able to draw your attention to some main ideas and main points that we want to look at. Uh, But first, I want to ask you a question. I want to get you to think a little bit this morning about something that you might know a little about. What is history. What is history? I know that uh, you all had to study it in school just like me. Uh, So what is history? How do we define what history is? (laughs) The past. Okay. Is is history simply a record of what happened in the past? (laughs) It's not a trick question. Not necessarily. I'm I'm asking because I want you to think about history. What is history? Is it just a record of the things that have happened in the past? Or does history necessarily involve interpreting the events that have happened in the past and trying to put them into some sort of context? In a way that makes sense. (laughs) Well, that was really an either-or question. It wasn't a yes or no. Uh, You kind of have to answer one or the other. You know, we live in a world today... That uh, is called postmodern. Um, all the smart people in society tell us that there is no greater context to anything, that there is no real meaning uh, that you can interpret in the events of the world. Things just happen, and there is no greater purpose or meaning or story behind them. Now, if that's the case, then that means that history is not interpreted in terms of the big picture. Because there is no big picture. Instead, what it means is that when we look at history, if we buy into that postmodern philosophy, when we look at history, we interpret the events of the past through the lens of today. We see things that happen and... Instead of understanding them in terms of the greater story or even their context of their time, we tend to see them through our own eyes. This is why, I think, in part at least, we're seeing a movement to tear down monuments across the United States, especially in the South, because we're interpreting those things through the lens of today rather than seeing them in the context in which they were created and happened. Even just this past week, right, we see outrage in the media over pictures of coal miners calling them racist for wearing blackface. Well, this is the postmodern world. See, in a postmodern world, there is no context. There is no greater meaning behind any of it. So when we look at the events of history... There's no overarching story. There's no overarching meaning or purpose. It just means whatever I think it means. So when I look at a picture of a coal miner with dust all over his face, I interpret it to mean that he is wearing blackface and he's a racist. Now, it means that until you, of course, come along with your own idea of what it means, and then it means that to you. And you, know, you see that this is the view that we see today in the world. But, but I got news for you. It's something to tell you. You're, this isn't news to you. You know this. But the world really isn't postmodern. It's just not. Your car is not postmodern. Your house isn't postmodern. Your furnace isn't postmodern. Be thankful for that, by the way. If your furnace is postmodern, um, you would have suffered a lot this week. Um the world isn't postmodern. Words and events do have meaning. History is more than just the facts about what happened. History is also more than just our own interpretation of those events. History and this isn't a dictionary definition, but it's mine, I suppose, is a record of the events of the past in which God's sovereign authority and His gracious activity are seen. In other words, history is about the works of God in the world that He's made. Two weeks ago, we studied Psalm 103 And we considered one aspect of the work of God. We looked in Psalm 103 primarily at God's work in redemptive history or God's work of salvation. The psalmist in Psalm 103 is focused on how God has taken his sin and carried it away. That's the psalmist's focus on God's forgiveness and salvation. Last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 104 and there we looked at God's creative work where the Bible tells us that God created the world and he sustains the world, providing for all of the creatures and the things that he's made. And so we've seen those two Psalms, two different aspects of God's work in the world, one spiritual and one very much physical in the physical world, in creating and sustaining the world. Psalm 105, today we're going to look at, and we're going to consider one uh, aspect of God's work in history. Probably not next Sunday, because I don't think we're going to finish Psalm 105 today, but, um, but probably in two Sundays from now, Lord willing, we'll turn to Psalm 106, and we'll see God's work in history from a slightly different perspective but we'll be considering God's work as well. Now, we already read through the psalm, and so I'm not going to read it at length, but I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. As we consider this question, Psalm 106 is going to focus on God's work in history. That's the true record of history. Not just the bare facts, not our own ideas or interpretations of what history is about, but God's work in history, And that's what we're going to look at this week. So let's pray and then we'll consider uh, what Psalm 105 says about God's hand in history. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have your word again this morning. Thankful that we can gather together and not just hear the, 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 the thoughts of a man, not just hear the, 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 the wisdom of uh, of mankind, even if it's what we might consider ancient wisdom we realize that what we read in your word is far beyond anything that any human being could come up with far beyond any understanding or wisdom that uh, that any of us could derive but lord we realize it is from you it is supernatural because it is the word of god breathed out by god inspired and 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 inerrant it is flawless it is true it is trustworthy lord thank you that you give us the truth, that you don't hide it from us, that you reveal it to us. And I pray today that you would give us hearts to uh, hear what you have to say. Help me as I speak to be able to uh, simply uh, reveal and expose your word, not uh, to, to in any way uh, hinder it, but Lord, help me to, to, uh, to speak carefully and clearly so that you, uh, you can be glorified and that your word can be uh, exalted and made known today. And I pray that each of us would, uh, would respond in faith and obedience to the truth that we hear today. And we'll give you the praise and the thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, Edward already read Psalm 105. But we've seen then already that, it, that Psalm 105 is basically a summary of the, the history of the nation of Israel beginning with the time of Abraham and going up unto the time of the conquest of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. So we're, we're really in these 45 verses. The psalmist is summarizing this period of history from the life of Abraham to the life of Joshua and kind of everything in between uh, that he's, he's considering and looking at. Uh, that survey of history takes up the bulk of these 45 verses, and especially from verse 7 to verse 45 is really all talking about the history of the the Israelites. Uh, In verse 45, at the very end of the psalm, the last verse of the psalm, we kind of have this this abrupt theological conclusion that the psalmist draws at the end of this survey of history. And, And that is really kind of the psalmist giving us what is the main takeaway, the main principle idea that we're supposed to get from thinking about God's work in Israel's history. Now, you notice I've skipped over the first six verses. All right, That's the introductory part. But what's interesting, and of course, it's the introductory part that's, that's directed to the readers of the psalm. So that would be us, but, but obviously there was a first audience not us. The first audience would have been Israelites, probably living in the time of the exile or, or maybe after the return from Babylon. So it's many centuries after the events that are recorded here. But, but these introductory verses 1 through 6 really are where we find most of the, the most powerful points of application of the psalm. For them... And I believe for us today. So we're actually going to come back to verses 1 through 6 later because that's where we find the, the so what portion for us. But, but before I do that, I want to consider the, the, the record of the history. I want to walk through it care, uh, kind of quickly and try to, uh, to, to, for us to get an idea of what the psalmist is getting at. Why give this big survey? Why does he go through and, and survey... Uh, the, the, the history from Abraham to Joshua. What's the point? What are we supposed to learn from that? What is, there, what, what is the, that supposed to teach us? And it's supposed to teach us something. So let's start there. And I want to walk through that. We begin in verse 7. In verses 7 through 15, we see this. The psalmist is demonstrating for us God's sovereignty in the lives of the patriarchs. God's sovereignty in the lives of the patriarchs. Verses 7 through 15. All right, what do we mean by sovereignty? Well, look with me there at verse 7. Verse 7, right off the bat, the psalmist says this, He is the Lord our God, Yahweh. That's what the Lord means. Lord is all capital letters. That means it's translating or, or rather, I would say, obscuring uh, the name of God, Yahweh here. He is Yahweh our God. But what is true about Yahweh our God? Notice what he says. His judgments are in all the earth, or his judgments go throughout all the earth. What is he saying? He's saying that God, Yahweh, who is our God, right? There's a a relationship there, but notice our God, Yahweh, governs the whole earth by his judgments, by his pronouncements. The, The word judgments means verdicts. It's It's a a term for a judge ruling and executing a verdict and saying, This is right, this is wrong, here's the verdict. And God does that, and the psalmist says, Our God governs the world this way. He makes verdicts, and his verdicts go out throughout the earth. His judgments are in all the earth. And so he, we could put it this way, he is king. He is king over the whole earth. That's what the psalmist tells us right from the very beginning here as he's moving into the historical section of the psalm. He's saying Yahweh, our God, is the king who rules, who governs over the whole earth. That's what we mean when we're talking about the sovereignty of God. He is sovereign. He is the the king He's the Lord who rules over everything and everyone by His own power and His own authority. But I want to be very, very clear about this. What is the psalmist saying? We're saying, let me me explain this. Verse 7 is not saying that Yahweh is God and therefore He has the right to rule over all the earth. Now, is that a true statement or not? Our God has the right to rule over the earth. Is that a true statement? Our God has the right to rule over the earth. Yes, it is a true statement. But that is not what this psalm is saying. Because there's a difference between saying he has the right to rule over the earth. That statement leaves the possibility open that although he has the right to do it, he may not actually do it. You understand what I'm saying? Just because we could say, well, I have the right to do this, but that doesn't mean I'm actually going to do it or I'm actually doing it. So we could say God has the right to rule and leave open the possibility that He doesn't actually rule. But Psalm 105 doesn't leave that possibility open at all. No, in fact, Psalm 105 makes it very clear. It's very direct. Yahweh's judgments are in all the earth. They are carried out throughout the whole world. What God wills to do, He does without fail. By the way, you need to come tonight... Uh, to our study of the strange fire, um, a strange fire study that we're doing at Jim and Eileen Dempsey's house, because we're going to be talking about this issue again. Does God have the authority to do on earth whatever He pleases? Or does He need us to give Him the okay? Because part of the problem that we're going to be looking at tonight, part of the false teaching that we see in the charismatic movement, is it teaches that we dictate whether or not God can do His will on earth. And it's a serious, serious problem. And we're going to talk about that tonight. That's one of the things that will come up in the study tonight. That's my commercial for tonight. But here's the thing, right? The Bible is very clear. Psalm 105 is very clear. God doesn't try to do things. He actually does them. Why? Because He is sovereign. Right? So when we talk about God's sovereignty here, verse 7, right from the get-go in this, in this study of the history of Israel, he, the psalmist makes it clear. God does what He pleases on the earth. He's in control. His judgments, His verdicts, His commands, they're carried out on the earth. When God says something, it happens. That we need to understand, and that's where we start from. Now, I say here we have God's sovereignty in the lives of the patriarchs. Well, who are the patriarchs? Well, again, the psalmist reveals that to us in verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, uh, he begins to speak about a covenant. Verse 9, he explains that covenant was made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. And then verse 10, confirmed it to Jacob. See, these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God made a covenant with them. These are the patriarchs. They're called the patriarchs because they are the fathers, the ancestors of the nation of Israel from whom all of the Jewish people are descended. God made a covenant with them. And notice what this verse tells us, that he remembers his covenant forever. Verse 8. I love that verse. He remembers his covenant forever. And as we've noticed in other psalms, I think we even mentioned it last week, the idea of God remembering isn't because he's in danger of absentmindedly forgetting. When we say God remembers, what we mean is that, that God intentionally remembers, that he focuses his attention, that he, he determines something, and then he follows through on it. He chooses to keep his word. That's what we say. When he says God remembers his covenant, what he's saying is God chooses, he focuses, he determines to do it. And then he follows through on it. Look at what he says. He remembers his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. Now, how long is a thousand generations? Well, let's just say that we haven't reached that point yet. Okay? A thousand generations, well, it's forever. I mean, you know, let's not sit down and, and calculate mathematically here. It's not the point. Even if it was, we still haven't reached that point yet, okay? A thousand generations, the point here is this is forever. God doesn't forget God doesn't abandon his word. He doesn't turn his back on his promises. He doesn't change his covenant that he made with the patriarchs. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about God's authority and actual power that rules on the earth. And we talk about his, the patriarchs, we're talking about people, men, with whom he made covenant that he will keep. So we have a God who, when he wills to do something, it happens, who declares to these men that he's going to do something. That's what this is all about. God, who is sovereign in the lives of the patriarchs. What was it that he declared? What was it that he promised? Well, look at verse 11. He said something specific to them. To you, I will give the land of Canaan as your inheritance. Right? This is God's promise to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob. Land, the land of Canaan for an inheritance. You know, those three men lived for more than two centuries. They lived for more than two centuries in the land of Canaan without owning a single acre of ground. Think about it. God made promises to them, He confirmed promises to them. And yet, for more than 200 years, they lived in that land without owning a single bit of it. How can God make such an outrageous promise? More importantly, how could God keep such an outrageous promise? It's very simple. He's the sovereign king whose judgments govern the whole earth. That's why verse 7 is so important because it lays the foundation for all of this. The reason that God can make and keep promises to these men, a promise to give them the entire land of Canaan when they don't own any of it, is that he is the king. And what the king says goes. So he's going to do that. He makes the promise. And and, and in verses 12 through 15, we actually see uh, how he, by his own hand, how he uh, guarded his promise. Right? He guarded those covenant promises. And notice what it says. Verse 12 talks about when they were few in number. Literally, the expression there is when they were small enough to be numbered. When there were so few of them, you could count them. Right? Abraham and his family, his household, Isaac, Jacob. We're talking about a family here. Now some families are large, larger than others. My, uh, my, my wife's family is pretty considerable size as far as families go. Uh, we get together with them on holidays. Her, her mom's got uh, uh, 12 siblings and, and uh, Christmas time, most of the family was together. I don't know the exact number this year, uh, but usually somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 to 100. There's about 110 in the family right now, I think. So usually between, somewhere between 90 and 100 actually get together and show up. You get that many people and you know, we, they run out of church fellowship hall and we just cram in there and it's, it's loud, it's crazy, it's wild. Um, but you know, that, that's a pretty good-sized family. But you wouldn't want to take a family even of that size and say, you know, we're going to move into a hostile territory where there's all sorts of enemies and we're going to conquer them. These large cities with walls and military, and and, and we're going to take our family of 100 people and we're going to go conquer them. That's ridiculous. But that's what is happening here. You have the patriarchs, and they're there in the land of Canaan. And in fact, we know that when, uh, when they finally left Canaan to go down to Egypt, there was only 70 of them in the family. So there was a group of 70 people at most. And God is saying to them, all of this land is going to be yours. I know you're surrounded by enemies, but it's all going to be yours. Well, good luck taking that 70 people and conquering the land of Canaan. Ain't going to happen. But that was God's promise. They were few in number. Their families were small and insignificant. They were surrounded by Canaanite tribes who had walled cities in which to live, had military had, had all of these uh, advantages. How in the world were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob going to conquer the land and take possession of it? Well, you know, set aside that for a minute. Let's forget the ideas of conquering the land. Let's just think about surviving in the land. I mean, if you're Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you've got a family of maybe up to 70 people, and you become wealthy, because the Bible tells us that they became wealthy, who's going to protect you? from the neighboring king who decides he wants your wealth and he has an army of thousands and is going to just come and take it? Who's going to stop him? Well, here's the beauty of what we read. According to verse 14, he, that is the Lord, permitted no one to do them wrong. The Lord did not allow anyone to oppress them. In fact, he rebuked kings on their behalf. That's what it tells us there in verse 14, that the Lord actually rebuked those kings on behalf of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You say, well, who's going to protect them from these enemies? Well, the Lord is king, and his judgments rule on the earth, and so the Lord didn't allow anyone to harm them. More than that, he actually rebuked the kings who would have done that. This probably is referring to a couple of incidents you may be familiar with if you're familiar with the lives of these men. Remember, uh, at one point, Abraham and Sarah fled to Egypt during a time of famine. And Abraham lied about Sarah, said, She's not my wife, she's my sister, which was half true, because she was his half-sister, but they were married. And he lied about that. And, uh, And then he did it again, by the way, later in the land of Canaan with the king Abimelech. And then Isaac, his son, did the same thing with his wife, Rebekah, and another king of Abimelech uh, in in Canaan. And what's interesting is that in those instances, God rebuked those kings. God intervened supernaturally to protect Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, to keep them safe so that they couldn't be harmed, so that those kings uh, wouldn't do them any harm. In fact, God even caused the, the kings to be forced to come to Abraham and ask Abraham to pray for them that they wouldn't be destroyed by God. That was how seriously God took Protecting his covenant promises to Abraham. Now what's really amazing when you think about it. Is that even though in those instances Abraham and Isaac were not acting in faith. They were not believing and obeying God. And yet God was still faithful to keep his word. He still intervened on their behalf. Protecting them. Blessing them. Not allowing anyone to mistreat them or harm them. See, humanly speaking, we look at this small band of, of family that's living and wandering in this the, the land of Canaan without any land of their own to claim. And we say, who's going to protect them? And then we remember that the God who made these promises is the great king who rules over the earth and whose judgments are done on the earth. And guess what? He takes care of them. Have no fear. Right? In spite of Abraham's fear and Isaac's fear and reputation. And then, of course just set aside all of Jacob's lying and deception to try and get ahead. In spite of all of that, Yahweh's covenant was never at risk, not one time. Abraham went down to Egypt and thought, you know what, if I tell them that Sarah's my wife, they're going to kill me and they're going to take her. Abraham, don't you remember God had made promises to you? And he hasn't fulfilled those promises yet? You can't die yet because God isn't done with you yet. But Abraham didn't believe the promises at that point. In those moments, instead, he tried to protect himself. But don't worry. The promise was never in doubt. God was in control the whole time. Right? God was in control of the circumstances of their lives. He was in control not not only of just their lives, but also of the lives of the unbelieving kings of Egypt and Canaan who were around them. It's amazing. wish we had more time to consider that history that would be better off in a series in Genesis, not so much in Psalms. But you notice the next verse. Verse 15 is interesting because verse 15, we actually have the wording of God's rebuke. And I want to just make a point about this before we uh, go on. I think verse 15 has been uh, misapplied and misused uh, at times by pastors, evangelists, other Christian leaders. Verse 15, we have this rebuke from God. Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Uh, Unfortunately, this verse, I believe, has been misused. It is not referring to generic Christian leaders. This verse is clearly referring to the patriarchs themselves, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three men that are identified here in this passage. is very, very clear. They were the ones who are called God's anointed ones here. So this is not a verse referring to the pastor as the anointed man of God or something like that. Unfortunately, there are churches and places where that idea is used. This verse is, 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 as I said, it is the rebuke that Yahweh gave to the kings of Canaan who otherwise would have abused Sarah and Rebecca and put the covenant promise of God in jeopardy. Today, when this verse is used by Christian leaders, it's often used to deflect criticism or to attack anyone who would dare point out their own sin by saying something to the effect of, you don't dare touch the Lord's anointed one. You better leave me alone and back off. Well, When any, when any leader does that today, or anyone does that today, I will simply say this. They are taking God's word out of context. They are misusing God's word. Don't do that, and don't allow anyone else to do that, and certainly don't follow anyone who does that. That's not what this verse means. Now, let's move on. In the next stanza, uh, we have uh, the sovereignty of God in the life of Joseph, right? God's sovereignty in the life of Joseph. So we're, we're continuing down following the history here. But notice, God's sovereignty is still what's in view. I want you to see that. That's important here. Who was it that caused the famine to come uh, into the land of Canaan and all the way down to Egypt? Who was it? Well, according to verse uh, 16, it was Yahweh. Right? The Lord, He called for a famine in the land and he destroyed all of the food. But that can't be right, can it? I mean, God wouldn't cause a famine to come into an entire region starving who knows how many people. What kind of God would do that? Think of the babies who were hungry or the elderly who had nothing to eat. Well, if your conception of God is that he can't or won't bring down natural disasters on whole groups of people, not judging them for any specific wrongdoing, but simply to further his own purpose, then you need to rethink what you believe about God. Because verse 16 couldn't be any clearer. The famine didn't just happen. It wasn't a natural event that just kind of came to be. Verse 16 tells us God called for it. How cruel is that, right? But, but, but wait, bear with me just one second here. Because we have to look at the next verse and look at the context here. In the very next verse we see this. Before he called down a famine on the land, before he destroyed everyone's food supply, he had already sent Joseph ahead. What did Joseph tell his brothers in Genesis 45? God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. So go, this wasn't, this wasn't God trying to destroy a bunch of people, God bringing natural disaster into a group. No, this was, God was already doing this in advance. I was worried here for a minute that our view of God's benevolence was in jeopardy. But don't worry, it's saved. He really is a loving God. He wouldn't make a whole region of people suffer just for his own purposes, which remain a mystery to us. No. God would never bring suffering into anyone's life without telling us why. Right? Some of you are a little like, you're going, wait a second here. There's there's a catch here, right? Well, okay, look at the next verses. God sent Joseph ahead. Greg already commented on this, though. This doesn't sound so... This doesn't sound quite so pleasant here. God sent Joseph ahead by him being sold as a slave. Hmm. Verse 18, he, his feet hurt in fetters and his neck in an iron collar. That seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? Wait, wait, could God be doing this? Wait, God caused Joseph to be sold into slavery and his 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 feet put in fetters and his his uh, his neck in an iron collar? Hmm. Oh wait, oh and it even says more than that. Notice it says then verse 19 that the Lord tested him word testing there is the word refers to uh, uh, um, uh, refining metal, which of course is done by smelting, which is heating the metal so hot with an intense fire that it separates out the impurities. Well, that doesn't sound very pleasant. Joseph had to wait in prison, accused of a crime that he didn't commit And the reason he was accused of that is that he refused to sin and do something that he knew was wrong. Finally, Pharaoh set him free and put Joseph in charge of all of his possessions and all the grain of Egypt. Now, we could say a lot of things about the life of Joseph, but Joseph actually summarizes his life very well for us in Genesis chapter 50. There he reassured his brothers that he did not consider himself to be in the place of God. And here's what Joseph said to them his brothers who had sold him as a slave. Joseph said, you planned evil against me. God planned it. Get this, God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. God was in control the whole time. That's important. God's sovereignty in the life of Joseph is displayed. Yes, God brought the famine, into the land. Yes, God did that on purpose. And we're going to see here in the next bit what that purpose was. Because there's a very specific reason that God did that. They needed to do that. But even when God did that, he was already working. Yes, that meant sending Joseph into slavery, in bondage, being put in fetters and a collar around his neck and being dragged off as a slave. Yes, all of those things are true. And yet, this was all God's plan being worked out. The next stanza is the longest one in the psalm. Beginning in verse 23 and it goes down uh, to verse 36. And here we see the psalmist emphasizing God's sovereignty in the bondage and rescue of Israel. God's sovereignty in the bondage and rescue of Israel. Again, he points to the fact that God was entirely in control the whole time. After Joseph had risen to power in Egypt, he became the second in command to Pharaoh. Joseph brought his father, Jacob, and the rest of the family down to live there, there in Egypt, where there was abundant food and pasture. Interesting, I want you to point out a couple things to you. Verse 23, notice there it says that Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. I'm sure we had a good laugh about this. Last time when the kids and, 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 uh, and Paulette and I read through this psalm, we tend to find phrases in the Bible that, that just tickle our funny bones sometimes. And The land of Ham is one of those that I think we probably laughed about, uh, what that land must have looked like. Uh, but the, he didn't call Egypt the land of Ham here because they raised pigs. Okay? Um, he called them that because they were descendants of Noah, just like Jacob and his family. The people of Egypt came from Ham, one of Noah's sons. And Jacob and his family came from Shem, one of Noah's other sons. And uh, this suggests something, by the way. Just think about this for a minute. And again, we can just see the hand of God is incredibly powerful in its far-reaching effects. You have to go all the way back to the time of the flood. At the time of the flood, God spared Noah, along with his wife, his three sons, and their wives. God spared all of them through the flood. Eight people that God spared. That was directly the hand of God. And God caused the descendants of Ham to settle in Egypt. Because eventually, a number of centuries down the road... God was going to bring the descendants of Shem to Egypt and the descendants of Ham were going to take them in and provide them with a place to live and food to eat. That was God's provision hundreds of years in advance. God did that. He worked that out. And this little phrase here, that they were in the land of Ham, is a reminder that this takes us all the way back to the the time of Noah. And we have to remember that God was working from that time till now, making sure that everything was in place so that when Jacob and his family needed to come to Egypt, there would be people there who would take them in and would take care of them and would have food for them. This is not an accident that Jacob and his family ended up in Egypt. It was the sovereign hand of God which guided the events of history for centuries in order to bring this one event about at this one crucial moment in time. Do not think, do not think that God is not working in our world But remember that God's timetable spans centuries and millennia and all of eternity. Which is why most of the time we can't see it happening in our lives because we just live too short of a life. We're like the fruit fly that lives for a day, has no conception of a week or a year or a decade or a generation. But to God, He looks at us and He sees the whole span of history and we live in this tiny little fraction of a moment. And sometimes we think, well, I don't see anything happening. Well, yeah, because you just don't live long enough. There's no way you could see it. God's working. He's got this plan and it's stretching out here in this incredible uh, time span. But notice here, verse 24 tells us that, that the Lord was very gracious toward the family of Israel. He caused them to be fruitful, to increase in number, to multiply. In fact, he caused them to multiply so that they greatly outnumbered their enemies. Now, if we want to understand the, the, the significance of that, we got to go back to verse 12, what we already looked at, where the patriarchs lived in Canaan and were few in number. Remember, when they lived in Canaan, they were vulnerable. They were few in number. They were surrounded by Canaanite tribes that were bigger and stronger and more influential. And here's this small family, and who's going to protect them? And God said, well, don't worry. I'm going to move you from Canaan down to Egypt. I've got things prepared there. Don't worry. I brought the Ham's descendants there 100 years ago. They're good. They'll take care of you for a while. And then, by the way, while you're there, I'm going to make you multiply so that you're so big you'll be able to come back to Canaan and you'll have enough people to take it over. Wait, so God was working out this whole thing this whole time? Yeah. This whole time, God was doing this so that He could multiply His people. So that He could make them into a big enough people to accomplish the fulfillment of His promise. The divine promise of God is being fulfilled right before our eyes. It begins with Abraham and Sarah, a childless couple who lived well, he was in his 90s and she was in her 80s. A childless couple. That's where the promise first came. And now we see this great multitude large enough to possess the entire land of Canaan. In just a few centuries, God has worked all this out. What a great act of this sovereign king who governs the earth with his own judgments. But wait, there's more to the context here we've got to read. It seems that there's a bit of a snag. You see, he turned the hearts of the Egyptians against the children of Israel. According to verse 25. He made them deal deceptively with the Israelites and bring them into bondage as Pharaoh's slaves. Uh-oh. Maybe this is one of those unintended consequences. You know, politicians do this a lot. They, they come up with some great idea that we're going to revolutionize uh, our, our country. And they don't think about the fact that there's some unintended consequence that's going to happen and they don't foresee that and it leads to all sorts of problems. Well, maybe that's not what's going on here. Right? God's not falling prey to that law of unintended consequences. He caused the Israelites to to grow in number so they would be strong enough to go take the land of Canaan. But in doing that, He also caused the Egyptians' hearts to turn against them. In fact, in fact, The verse there tells us that he did this on purpose. Verse 25, he turned their heart to hate his people. Again, we we, we have to come back to this question. How could God do such a thing? Why would he cause his people to be hated? How could a loving God cause his people that he cares about to be hated? That's what he did. He did it on purpose. He caused the Egyptians to make his people slaves and to oppress them with hard toil and bondage. Again, what on earth could justify such a thing as if God needed us to justify him? But let's keep going and let's find out because the, 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 the context here is important, the psalm is important here, the history matters. See, there was this guy named Moses. He was raised in Pharaoh's house and he used his great Egyptian education, his awesome public speaking skills and his incredible magic skills to to, to wow Pharaoh into letting his people go. You think I got that one wrong? You're looking at me, you're kind of skeptical. Okay, maybe that's not exactly how it happened, right? Again, it was Yahweh who chose Moses and Aaron to be his servants. That is so clear here in verse 26. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. Look at this. God is still working. God is still in control. He chose them. And he sent them to perform. Notice in in the next verse. He sent them to perform his signs and wonders. Right? That's verse 27. They they didn't perform just signs and wonders. They are His, Yahweh's signs and wonders. The Lord was doing these things. And Moses and Aaron were His tools, His instruments. He is completely and totally sovereign. He is absolutely in control. And you think, no way. These people are slaves to the most powerful king in the world. There's no way that God is in control. These people are slaves. They have no freedom. They have no liberty. They're being in bondage and hard toil. And what are Moses and Aaron going to do? Moses is a, you know, he's, he's run away. He, he had to flee from Egypt. He, he turned his back on all of that. What's he going to do? It's not about Moses and Aaron. It's about God. Notice how he describes what happens here. Verse 28. He... That is, Yahweh sent darkness, and it became dark. Now, that's a bit of an understatement, all right? Exodus 10 tells us that this was a darkness that could be felt. I don't know what that is. It doesn't sound good. I don't know. I've never experienced something like that. This is unique. This was a supernatural darkness. In fact, it says there in Exodus 10 that for three days, the people of Egypt did not move from the places where they were at. And they didn't see another person for three days because of the darkness. Terrifying. I mean, I'm, I'm not afraid to admit it, that I am a little bit afraid of the dark. But this is beyond. The people of Egypt were struck with incredible terror because of the darkness that God... brought. But here's the thing, right? This is what's amazing. Exodus 10 also tells us that the Israelites had light in all their houses. God was completely in control of it. Everything. Right? Verse 29 tells us that He, that is Yahweh, turned their water into blood and killed their fish. In verse 30, He sent frogs to cover the land. In verse 31, He sent uh, swarms of flies and lice. In verse 32, instead of rain, the Lord caused it to hail and struck the land with lightning, killing their vines and their fig trees. Then He sent locusts to eat up their vegetation. Finally, he destroyed the firstborn of every family of Egypt, even the family of Pharaoh. And yet he spared the Israelites who obediently put lamb's blood on the lintel and doorposts of their houses. This was an incredible display of power by which Yahweh crushed the Egyptian gods and proved that he was himself the one true God. There was none other. Every point along the way here, as we go through the psalm, the psalmist makes it very clear that God is in perfect control. He was never in doubt. It was never in jeopardy. His promise, His covenant, it's all there. He's keeping it. He's fulfilling it. He's remembering it. Now we come to the last section here. and He moves on from the Exodus itself. Now he discusses the years in the wilderness and the conquest here, uh, verses 37 to 44. God's sovereignty in the wilderness and conquest of Canaan. He didn't just rescue Israel from their bondage in Egypt, he gave them great riches in the process. That's what we find there in verse 37. He brought them out with silver and with gold, he spoiled the Egyptians. Notice how he favored his people. It says there was none feeble among his tribes. Think about that. The entire people, the entire nation of Israel, not one feeble. He was able to give strength even to the elderly and the frail so that no one was left behind. No one had to stay because it was too long of a journey and they couldn't make it. Not a single one. That is amazing. How did the Egyptians respond to Israel's departure? It says that they were glad. Actually, again, verse 38, our English translation of that really seems like much of an understatement. When it says they were glad, it means they rejoiced. It means they celebrated. We have the idea here that, that they, they sang and they danced, the Egyptians did, because the, these Israelites were gone. They were so overjoyed that the Israelites were finally out of their hair. God had caused them to fear, he says here. God had put fear in their hearts. He would caused them to fear the children of Israel. Every single aspect of the Exodus is in God's control. Notice what else it says. He spreads a cloud over them to cover them, which is really an interesting way to describe it. This is the only place we have that kind of description here of that in the Old Testament. It was the pillar of cloud, remember? Here we have that description of it almost as if God was spreading it like a blanket over them. And of course, he gave them light by the pillar of fire. He gave them whatever they needed. Light, they need light, he gave them light. They need, dark, need, need you know, darkness or to be hidden? He, he, hide, he hid them. He, he, he provided for them everything they needed. According to verse 40, when they asked for meat, he sent quail. They asked for bread. And he provided bread. Think about it, though. How would you provide food for millions of people wandering around in a desert place for 40 years? I mean, you sit down, you start making up your list. Gonna go to the, gonna go to, you know, can't go to Walmart or Aldi. We need to have, like, Costco and Sam's Club. You know, big, We need to have a big supply here, right? Got to buy in bulk. Now, this wasn't a problem for the Lord. He sent down bread from heaven. That was God's solution. I got millions of people in the desert. They need food. Well, just bread from heaven every day. Here you go. Enough for you to have, for everybody to have as much as they want so they never go hungry for 40 years. Absolutely, absolutely amazing, astounding. How did he provide water for those people? Well, it tells us here in the the passage, right? Verse 41, he opened the rock and he caused water to come gushing out. Well, these people and their livestock, they all need water to drink. What is God going to do? We're in the desert. We'll just go to that rock. I'm going to make a river come out of it. Who would have thought that? Who would do it? Who could do it? No one but the sovereign king who rules over the earth by his judgments. That's our God. That's the God the psalmist is talking about. He brought these people out and he provided for them. By the way, notice what he says there in verse 42. He did this because, notice, he remembered his holy promise. And Abraham, his servant. There's a connection here between verse 42 and verse 8, where we're reminded in verse 8, we're told that God remembers his promise forever, his covenant. And here we're told this is why he did it, because he remembered. Yes, centuries had gone by, but God remembered. God was still fulfilling his promise, he was still keeping his word. Even after all the years wandering in the desert, verse 43 tells us that, that, that he brought these people out of Egypt and into Canaan with songs and with rejoicing. He handed them the land of Canaan. And this is important. All the way back, he told Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you're going to get this land. All this land is going to be yours. I know you're only, you only have 70 people. There's no way you can conquer the land. The enemies are there are way more than you. But don't worry. I'm going to give it to you. And here he is so many centuries later, and he brought these people, and notice how it says it there in verse 40, 44. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles, right? Did they have to take it for themselves? No, God gave it to them. And what's more, notice what it says. They inherited the labor of the nations. This is amazing. Not only did God take that small group of people, send them down to Egypt multiply them so that they then become slaves, which he then delivers them. And in delivering them, he spoils the Egyptians, giving them all this wealth that they need. They come along, and then for 40 years he provides for them. He brings them to the land, and then he hands the land of Canaan over to them, driving out the nations that were there, driving the people out. But you know what? He gave them the land of Canaan. He gave them cities that they had not built that they could move into and live in. He gave them houses. He gave them fields and vineyards that they didn't plant and orchards that were full of fruit that they didn't have to plant and wait. How long does it take when you plant a fruit tree and you've got to wait for it to produce fruit? years. They didn't have to wait. How long does it take when you plant a, a grapevine? How long before you start getting good grapes? Years. They didn't have to wait. They went into the land and God said, here, oh, by the way, here's a, it's already planted. It's already fruitful. Just take it. It's yours. They got to walk in and take their, the labor of the nations. Other people did the work and they got the benefit. Why? Because God was sovereign. God was faithful. He governs the world by His own judgments. All of this history is pointing us to that fact that God is sovereign; that He is in control. But I want to just look at this last verse of the Psalm and consider the Psalmist's conclusion that he draws from his retrospective of the history of Israel. I like the way the Christian Standard Bible translates it. All this happened so that they might keep his statutes and obey his instructions. Hallelujah. What is the purpose for which God used his sovereign power to intervene in world history? We have this record in Psalm 105. Why did God do all of this? Why did God intervene? Why did he exercise his sovereign power in these specific ways? We're told. Is it because he's keeping his promises? Well, yes, but there's more than that. Is it to prove his power and reveal his glory? Yes, but there's more than that. According to this last verse, all of these things happened so that God's people would live obedient lives according to God's commands. That's the purpose. Now, I have a question for you to consider today. Is the Lord any less sovereign today in 2019 than He was back then? Has His power and authority and His exercise of authority changed in any way? Does He exercise any less control over the affairs of this world than He did in ancient times? Be careful how you answer this because we're tempted to think that somehow he's changed or somehow things have gotten out of control. Can he still control rulers and kings, foods and harvests, animals and nature? Of course he can. He's still the same God and he still exercises the same power on the earth. Then doesn't he still desire that his people would live in obedience to his word? The same thing is true. Now, how about you this morning? Have you recognized have you recognized Yahweh, the God who is revealed to us here in this psalm as the sovereign Lord, the sovereign king? Have you recognized him as king? Have you honored him as king with your life? Have you bowed yourself before him in obedience and submission? There's a lot of of self-examination that should take place when we read a psalm like this. We can think about all of the things that God has done in the world. This is just a small sample. We can even think about what God has done in our own lives. And as we do that, we need to ask that question. Am I obeying the sovereign Lord who rules over this world? Am I bringing my life into subjection to His commands? We're going to examine this in more detail next week, but I want to encourage you today to pray that God would open your eyes to show you if there are areas of disobedience in your life, areas that you need to address, areas that need to change because you're not living in obedience to the sovereign King who rules in this world. And I trust that as you pray and ask God to show you those things, that you'll then follow through on repenting of your wrong, on bringing your life into submission to Him, so that you can live in obedience. That's the purpose for which He has acted in history and in your life. Heavenly Father, You are a great King who rules over all things. And it is so easy for for me to forget that, to look at the world and see the the powerful people and the influences, the the things that are happening in our world and everything just seems to be spiraling out of control. It's easy to forget that you are working on your timetable which spans all of eternity and all of history. You're not bound to one lifetime like I am. Therefore, I trust you that you are working out your plan, that you are working your purpose, that even the wickedness and evil of mankind will ultimately serve your purpose in bringing about your glory in this world and even in my life. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to be submissive to that. Help me to to submit to you in obedience. Help me to be willing to, to obey you in every area of my life, recognizing that you are the king, you are the sovereign You are the one who rules in history. And therefore, you rule in my life as well. Help me to submit to that. Help us all to submit to your authority and your rule today. In Jesus' name, amen.